The Dime is sponsored by ETH Revolution. The cannabis industry has unique challenges, which means you need a multifaceted partner to help you navigate the landscape. ETH Revolution has a team of experienced science and business experts to provide a unique analytical approach, providing services from capital to cannabinoid and everything in between. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and always I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Ben Oyhu's Cannabis Scientist. Ben, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? How's it going, guys? Great to be here. We're excited to have you. How are you doing, Kellen? Doing good. Really excited to talk to Ben and learn as much as we can about the endocannabinoid system today. Yeah, looking forward. So, Ben, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with you, can you kind of share a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I'm a biochemist from Texas, uh, trained in Texas State University, and most recently I finished my graduate program um, in Israel at the Technion under uh, Dr. Dedi Miri, and uh, we were pretty unique. We had a, a unfettered access to whole strain cannabis extracts and biological models. We were able to uh, research um, bioactive compounds and mechanisms of action with cannabis um, acting on the endocannabinoid system using healthy and disease models. Um, we were mainly like a preclinical lab that focused on cancer studies. Um, I focused focus on uh, brain cells that were present in neurodegenerative diseases like multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's disease. But that is, you know, a cannabis scientist, endocannabinologist trained in Israel. So, so cool. Now take us through what your role is currently in the space. Um, I'm also a ambassador for uh, Dutch Medical Cannabis Society. Awesome. So let's kind of dive into some of that. I know not every day is the same day. So take us through kind of what goes through, you know, your normal day-to-day process. So I'm an analytical chemist and we work on the uh, API formulation and method development and validation to create one of the best possible standards for Texas and uh, hopefully the rest of the globe. I have a quick question, Ben. Um, you mentioned Dronabinol. Could you kind of walk through what the API in Dronabinol is for, for our listeners who haven't heard that term used yet? So Gernabinol is a uh, synthetic THC. Um, it's commonly used um, for HIV patients, as well as for uh, cancer patients that uh, are experiencing conditions like uh, nausea um, that are just coming off of chemotherapy. Uh, but given that it is a synthetic THC, uh, given that it is a THC-based medication, um, it does have a uh, prospective slew of beneficial you know, therapeutic potential uh, for conditions outside of HIV and even you know, cancer patients facing nausea. From like a research standpoint, obviously there's such a misunderstanding across the board of like where we are and where we need to be to, to get there. So Ben, in your opinion, where do you want to see the research going? Can you talk about some of the, the recent research you've seen that's really excited you the most? Yeah. So, you know, when I went to Israel, I uh, was originally looking for a position in science inside of the States that was doing more cannabis-based science. And it kind of became clear that, you know, given the regulation that we have, the restriction, it wasn't really possible to find that. And it was so lucky that I was able to meet Deddy Miri at the Cannabis Science West Conference that's held by Josh Krosny and the whole Cannabis Science Conference team. Uh, but it became very clear, you know, that this was one of the only places to do cannabis-based research. And originally started with, you know, the love of um, the potential of these compounds. But I honestly fell in love with the endocannabinoid system and um, hoping that as, you know, time goes on and we learn more and more about it, 
that we are beginning to understand where its stance is in biology and medicine. You know, to me, cannabis is like this key to the endocannabinoid system. It has all these potential activators and agonists and antagonists that work on the CB1 receptors, CB2 receptors, other G protein receptors that are considered orphan G pro- orphan receptors right now, but as well as receptors like the trap channels, you know, TRP, which has a whole slew of different constituents. So what we're seeing right now is um, an expanded, you know, definition of the endocannabinoid system. And the endocannabinoid system is this ubiquitous homeostatic regulatory system that's found in every single living creature. People argue that it's not found in insects, but you can find the trap channels there. So I would argue that it's found in every living creature. This is predates cannabis by hundreds of millions of years. There's been really interesting studies that show that aquatic species back, you know, 500 million years ago carry the CB1, CB2 receptors, carry the enzymes um, and the endocannabinoid system's constituents. So we're really kind of seeing how uh, ubiquitous and how uh, prolific the system is. It's uh, found in you know, your circadian rhythm, your pain and pleasure reward systems. It's uh, responsible for the differentiation of what your cells defy, you know, decide to turn into, um, even programmed to when they die. And really interestingly as well is that uh, on the end of serotonergic, dopaminergic neurons uh, in every single brain that appear and uh, you know as early as the fetal embryo, you can see the endocannabinoid system, CB1 and CB2 CB1 receptors acting as neuromodulators. So it's absolutely essential to most everything in our lives. It is highly deserving of a place in medicine and biology for its potential in therapeutics. For our listeners out there who are still kind of gathering the initial footing on the endocannabinoid system, in its simplest of form, if the three of us were sharing a joint, would this be why one of us would feel, let's say, sleepy in comparison to the others being more uplifting? Yeah, you know, I think so. Um, we're, you know, still not even sure as to why, you know, that high uh, or what's driving that, you know, that feeling of the high. The most interesting hypothesis that I've seen and heard is that it's the endocannabinoids that are kind of modulating this. I can give you a really quick example with a, a compound called oleamide. And this is um, denoted as an endocannabinoid-like compound. It's not officially in the same uh, realm as like anandamide and 2-AG. It uh, would be played, you know, plays a role in that entourage effect where it's a steric modulator. Um, but Dr. Meshulam posits that, uh, believes that Dr. Meshulam was the guy that, you know, identified THC for the very first time in 1964, which rippled into us discovering the endocannabinoid system. So very, you know, credible guy. But this compound named oleamide is responsible for a sleepy feeling that we have, a hypnotic feeling. This is also backed up by DeMarzo. So, and, you know, if we're sharing a joint and, you know, one of us feels that it's a sativa and another one feels that it's an indica, it's more than likely that just given our basal levels um, and what our endocannabinoid uh, levels look like pre-joint and how those are modulated is what's determining how we have an effect. So it's not really, um, in my mind, as uh, simple as saying that this strain has these terpenes, so that it's a sativa, or this strain has these uh, terpenes, so it's an indica. It's more than likely it's a good guesstimate, but everybody is a little bit different. The many too many problems, like our friend Dr. Abrams usually <laughs> says, especially when <laughs> because we talk about, right, like if someone's bringing like a sativa, which we obviously hate discussing that as the frame of of reference, but it just for this case point, it's it's the easiest way for the generalization of this 
if you were right. passing that on and say, hey, Kellen, like here, like you don't need to worry about it, it, it kind of putting you in the couch. Here's a sativa. And then Kellen, you know, has to take a quick nap on that. He's like, hey, what's what's the deal here? And it kind of just puts into to mind of how far we still have to come with the understanding from a science standpoint. So Kellen, kind of take it one step further. The ECS, right? Like it, it's discussed more and more. We're seeing it, but from a doctor's standpoint, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about this previously. The endocannabinoid system isn't even taught in medical school yet. You know what I mean? And so like, we do have a long ways to go, but I just want to piggyback on one other thing that Ben was saying in terms of, I mean, th- that's why the need for personalized medicine is such a big deal. You know what I mean? Because like sativa, hybrid indica, we having different base levels of molecules in our bloodstream is going to change how we how we, we interact with that uh, that product. You know what I mean? And so I just want to drive that point home a little more. But yeah, I mean, the, the endocannabinoid system... I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of different claims associated with what it, how it like affects our homeostasis, right? You're just like base level of being alive for those who don't know what homeostasis, uh, what we're referring to, but I've heard it affect everything from mood to hunger to, to your sleep cycle, everything that Ben was saying. So I think at the basic level, we need more research associated with the endocannabinoid system. And I think that's probably the the most fundamental thing that needs to occur in the industry because like categorization of all these different products and dosing of THC and all these things could just be in vain if we don't understand exactly the mechanism associated with what is hot getting hot. You know what I mean? And we, we can see that with CBD and, and THC, you know what I mean? I mean, very, very similar cannabinoids from a structural standpoint. They, they, they're the exact molecular weight. One has a lactone, one doesn't. Right. Um, and because of that one small feature, you get a completely different experience <laughs> than like ingesting CBD versus THC. You right. Know what I mean, and so how those molecules interact with the receptor in CB1. I mean, I, I haven't read enough um, primary literature on the crystallography structure of the active site in CB1 and all those things to like truly to be able to disseminate. I haven't seen at least a uh, an argument placed before me that can really explicitly define why THC binds so much better than, than CBD and actually causes that quote unquote high. Have, have you seen anything like that, Ben? Um, nothing as, uh, yeah. Uh, and I'm not an organic chemist or a structural chemist, unfortunately, so it's a little <laughs> bit over my head, but which is on biochemistry though, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> receptorology. Yeah. Well, one thing that was really interesting that I uh, reported, um, and it might've even been in the last decade, uh, was the, just the, the crazy comparison between THC's tertiary structure and a nanomine's tertiary structure. And then a tertiary structure is, uh, you know, the structure that a compound, um, exhibits when it's binding to a receptor, you know, this lock and key kind of, you know, method for biology to, um, to activate different receptors. But when you look at a picture between anandamide and THC, the, the similarity is just ridiculously, they're almost identical. So I'm not really sure what's going on. Cause you know, uh, if you were to, you know, take them apart, um, and put them in their primary structure. Like, you know, if you're just to draw them on a piece of paper, they look like very different compounds. So I'm not really sure what's going on uh, in that respect. You know, there is, uh, you know, some things going on inside those receptors that would be very interesting to see. What is a nanomine? Anandamide, sorry. 
So anandamide is an endocannabinoid that is, uh, the acronym is AEA. Um, and anandamide was the uh, first co- uh, endocannabinoid discovered. And it's a uh, discovered by Meshulam, I believe, or another host of scientists and was given the name anandamide, which is Sanskrit for bliss molecule. And so this was the first ligand that they found to bind to CB1 and, you know, Back in a time when THC, or I'm sorry, weed wasn't 30% THC and uh, was more likely to make you very blissful, I guess they felt that it was a very suitable name. Thanks for breaking that down. So let's, like, I, I can spend the entire episode, like, asking why we didn't learn about it in college, why the doctors aren't taught this. Right. That's, that's the past. Let's talk about the future. Personalized medicine. What sort of roadmap would you like to see in order to take necessary steps to get there? Yeah. So even outside of the field of cannabis to look at, to see, you know, like ketosis, for, you know, for example, um, a lot of people are doing these ketosis diets and that's, you know, essentially when you starve yourself of carbohydrates, so that you're producing these ketone constituents inside your brain, inside of that realm of even just dietitians, it's extremely, extremely difficult to get a proper analysis of what's actually going through your, your body right now. Um, outside of a spinal tap, even it's very, you know, it might be even impossible, but it's very difficult to determine what's, what's responding in your brain, what's being produced in your central nervous system in your brain. So a roadmap would have a higher level of identification for, you know, these endocannabinoids that are circulating through your body. We could have a, um, a better way of understanding what's actually being activated and upregulated. You know, right now we're using mice models and, you know, these mice are being sacrificed and, and we're able to see a differential ability for the production of endocannabinoids. You know, one of our studies or a few of our studies from Israel, from the, the Miri lab, really worked on looking at the difference in endocannabinoid levels when given, you know, strains with almost identical THC, CBD levels. And we're seeing that it's, uh, there's a tremendous difference in the um, endocannabinoids that are being produced strain to strain, even if they have the same THC, CBD. So something that would be really um, important for us is to one, to see where a patient's basal levels are. And even in the recreational, you know, think recreational consideration, where a person's basal levels of endocannabinoids are. Um, and how they're modulated after, um, you know, inducing some kind of cannabis product or, you know, cannabinoid-like product. And another thing that is uh, extremely important is refining our analytical techniques. You know, we're, we're so lucky that we are where we're at because, you know, 40 years ago, we, you know, didn't have things like HPLC or LCMS. Um, and this is, you know, one of the reasons that they weren't really definitively able to show how um, important, you know, cannabis or what inside of cannabis was actually producing a therapeutic effect. But right now we're able to see that there's, you know, 96 plus 100 plus cannabinoids um, in any given type of strain, you know, in 2018, or even as far as, you know, most recently as 2020, um, when I left my graduate program, there were still like 17 cannabinoids that were unidentified, you know, and they had names like 31317B and things like that. And they seem to have a role in the bioactive effect. So what we need right now is, um, you know, a way to determine endocannabinoid modulation and a more refined way of determining what's actually inside these strains. Do you think we'll get there in our lifetime to personalize medicine? Um, I think so. Uh, I think the field of personalized medicine is uh, just exploding right now. One of the things that's really kept uh, or put cannabis science into semi-warp speed is, 
is the amount of information that comes from outside disciplines. You know, so we're using techniques and, you know, even uh, recruiting people from outside disciplines, interdisciplinary fields um, that are, you know, just constantly pushing, uh, you know, the boundary of what's possible. So, so yeah, the field of personalized medicine, I feel like is just, you know, refining and there is you know, so much interest and, um, you know, financial incentive to actually, you know, pursue R and D. Um, I think it would be, um, a matter of time for, uh, something potential inside of analytics to help us answer these questions inside of cannabis. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about it. In terms of the personalized medicine, I think that one of the biggest obstacles is, like you were saying, being able to measure exactly what's going on inside the brain, right? Because we can talk about those cannabinoids and you're smoking them to go into your bloodstream, but like what truly goes through the blood brain barrier, you know what I mean? A little shout out again, I'm going to try it, another Hail Mary here, but Elon Musk, right? And Neuralink by actually implanting a chip though, and right you can put some like small sensors in there. And like being able to run some chemometrics and like be able to measure cannabinoids, like this could be a huge opportunity for for us to make some money. Yeah, this is like the outs, you know, cross disciplinary, you know, outside disciplinary field. And um, but, it, but that's how you could do it. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, I think there could be something there. I don't know how far along they are with the Neuralink, but you know, I guess they're putting in the chimpanzees at this point. So I guess they're playing video games with it already. <laughs> yeah. I just want to go back Sorry. to what Kellen said, and he said there's a chance for Elon to make some money. Elon doesn't solve problems to make money. He solves problems that he thinks are necessary for like human survival, right? Like that's where he's at now. I'm not trying to make money, but to uh, to continue on that path, maybe Ben can come back at a later point and update us on. The comparison on the Neuralink and the endocannabinoid system. Let's dive into your research and your graduate program. I, I want to l- learn more about that. We heard your yeah. talk, I mean, roughly two years ago. It was incredible. And I want you to expand on some of the areas from a medical standpoint that you kind of came across or the research that, that fascinated you. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I wrote a uh, small publication for Cayman Chemical, uh, which is a pretty succinct, missing some, you know, details and, and major points. But it was a succinct kind of an, uh, explanation of big patterns that we found. And, and the whole thesis essentially was cannabis is a great um, key to the endocannabinoid system. But, but inside the lab that I was with um, for about for two years, uh, we were a preclinical, uh, largely anti-cancer um, or cancer therapeutics, chronic disease based lab. So a lot of my colleagues were working on cancer pro- uh, projects um, and I was working on um, a project with uh, microglia. And microglia is the primary cell uh, inside the central nervous system and brain. It's kind of like the primary sentinel that's looking around, repairing things, eating up stuff, um, and alerting other types of immune-based um, cells to uh, drive an effect. But some of the biggest things that we found um, were that cannabis has such a differential ability strain to strain. One of the things that really drives this was a colleague's, uh, you know, it is paid, it's in the published paper. Um, yeah, there's a few uh, studies um, that I'll bring up right now. And one of them was a, a colleague's study that um, did a, a 12, um, they had 12 different cancer cell types. And one thing that they found is that one, not every strain has the same ability. Um, and even if they are in you know, very comparable levels of THC and CBD, um, it's not given that they're going to have the uh, tremendous ability. One thing that was also found in that, you know, or two more things that were also found in that paper is that not every single cancer cell type is susceptible to cannabis treatment. So, you know, there were 
in most cases, there were two different uh, types of cell of the same cell. So, you know, you can, um, you know, when you're doing cell biology, uh, you can get a few different cell lines um, that are uh, indicative of a type of disease. So, you know, we had two different breast cancer lines, two different colon cancer lines, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in some cases, uh, not, you know, both breast cancer cell lines were not affected um, or not, you know, both H, uh, colon cancer cells were not affected. And sometimes you saw like just a, a tremendous differential ability um, where the breast cancer was extremely susceptible Um but cells like HT29, which is a colon cancer cell, had almost you know no susceptibility to being treated by cancer uh, by uh, cannabis. And when I say susceptible, like literally, what we were doing was admitting a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of cannabis extract and tracking to see over the course of 24 hours how many cells died. So literally, it was walking into a lab that was killing cancer every day, and that's just you know it was pretty cool in itself, but. Um, another thing that we found and, you know, or another thing that was found in that study and, you know, this, there's such a difference in, you know, from, uh, higher levels of complexity in organisms. So it would be interesting to see if this is something that also carries through in, um, in people, but the carboxylated forms of, uh, you know, THC and CBD, um, THCA, CBDA, had a terrible ability at inducing cell death in cancer cells. So, you know, your formulation also plays a big role in, uh, you know, the way that a, you know, cannabis strain or an extract is, is going to, you know, affect a certain scenario. So uh, one more thing that I wanted to share in that same realm uh, was a study done using mice. And what we did was induce an epileptic response using a compound called PTZ. And this is a really common thing to do when you're looking at epilepsy and, and uh, therapy for seizures. But we used five different strains and looking at the response with the mice, what we looked at was the time um, in between seizures, the overall survivability, and you know how they fared, basically. One, uh, so we used five different strains. And one thing that was seen is that uh, the survivability went up um, for all the mice, um, regardless of the strain that you use. So that, I mean, that's very positive information, I feel like. But one thing that we saw was such a difference in the latency, which is the time it takes you know, for them to have a seizure. And so there's a tremendous difference uh, ability in therapeutic potential just between these five different strains. And the kicker was that each strain had exactly the same amount of THC and CBD. Um, so THC CBD is a terrible indicator for determining a potential therapeutic response. You know, it might be better to, you know, as a guide uh, versus looking at like a, you know, a strain that's high in CBG or high in CBD, you know, what have you, or THCV, things like that. But we're shooting ourselves in the foot by just using those two compounds as an indicator for uh, therapeutic potential. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened to GW Pharmaceutical too, is they had to literally grow the exact same strain indoors in order to be able to produce the same, like the exact same chemical profile of Epidiolex. Right. It's literally that exact issue is they discovered that it wasn't the ratio of CBD and THC, it's everything else that comes right. with it from the extraction yeah. standpoint. And so one of the, you know, the things that I kind of harped on when I was there, it's, you know, it's not really uh, the levels that we should be concerned with. Maybe it's an indicator that, you know, strains that are high in CBD are carrying other kind of beneficial types of compounds, but, you know, and maybe they're acting as the vehicle, but it's a, it's more of an indication. I think that something is inside of it that is acting or drive or helping drive the effect. 
Um, and I just want to touch base as far as the carboxylated compounds. While they were not very helpful in the cancer study that we did, in my research dealing with microglia, um, and one of the things that we looked at was how well these, um, these cells were able to respond to uh, wound injury. So essentially, if you had some kind of neural damage, uh, which is what's happening with a disease like multiple sclerosis, we wanted to see how fast and how much better these microglia were able to respond um, and uh, you know, make some kind of uh, repair. In this scenario, the carboxylated strains were tremendous, and they were the ones that we followed suit with. Um, so it just entirely depends on the situation, entirely depends on the condition that you're looking for and the outcome. But it does seem to have, uh, you know, both parts, both a, uh, both forms of the plant, you know, seem to have, you know, tremendous effects in their own respect. So there's a ton to unpack. So I have to take a couple steps back and I apologize if I kind of misspeak. So when you were doing the cancer studies, right, you had identified specific strains work better for specific types of cancer. Is that how I? Yeah. So certain cancer cells, uh, cancer cell types were more likely to be affected by just cannabis in general. And then certain strains were more likely to induce a positive response. And one of the things, not CBD and THC as the main component. Exactly. You know, something that we, uh, that's found in this, you know, same publication. And I think it's, uh, if anybody wants to look it up, it's um, Baram 2018 or 19. We'll include a link in the, in the yeah. show notes. Yeah, that's okay, all listeners who check that out. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's the paper's title is a mouthful, but. But one thing that they did is, um, you know, they saw uh, using about 16 different cancer cell types, they saw that some strains had a uh, more consistent ability to induce cell death. And um, what they did is take one of these strains, which was high in THC, um, and they performed, you know, uh, took a gradient of different strains at different levels of THC. So we had, you know, let's just say like 12, it might be something like this. So don't, you know, uh, don't quote me, but it might be like 12 different strains or so um, ranging from one milligram to, you know, four milligrams of THC, you know, per percentage of, you know, the entire plant. And they also used um, a purified version of THC. And what they did using these different strains at variable levels of THC was, uh, you know, determine how well they were at inducing cell death. And um, very surprisingly, the purified THC didn't seem to have any effect on inducing cell death at that level. And there was absolutely no way to determine a strain's ability to induce cell death based on its percentage of THC. So the highest performer was like 3.6, you know, 3.2, something around there. But the strains to the left and the right of it did not indicate that this was, uh, you know, a gradient um, or uh, anything that they had shared in common outside of their THC levels. Let's take another step forward in this direction, right? It's a promising step. What's the follow-up after a trial like this? Is it additional trials in, in this direction? Like, take us through kind of how that works. So one of the things that, you know, really is essential to transform this into a clinical trial uh, is determining the bioactive compounds. Um, so one of the things that we did was uh, a process called fractionation. And fractionation is a pretty old te- technique. It's pretty used in the field of just in biomedics in general. Um, you know, it's, it's used outside of cannabis. 
Um, it's used in other Israeli labs that are able to um, access this research. But essentially what they do is um, use a bit of column chromatography um, and kind of partition out based on um, time and size of compounds and partition out the compounds in a cannabis extract into different little components. And you do this so much that the idea is that you're getting the most isolated versions of you know, compounds present as possible. And so what you do is you, know, you make about like, um, like five to seven different components. Um, the first one's got THC, the second one's got CBD, the third one's got you know, THCV or the whole you know, slew of minor cannabinoids. And you go through and just, you know, determine at, at what combinations or, um, uh, you know, if, if there's any combinations that are working um, and you just kind of repeat this process until you're left with the most isolated versions of these compounds and can kind of determine what's going on. Um, and just in the, the whole aspect of our refining of analytics, this is a process that is very difficult to get a good source of these components. Because these compounds are coming in at such a small amount of you know, the extract that it's very, very difficult to elute them out at large enough levels. Because um, after you elute them out to different components, you have to go through a process of refining and purifying them. And through any you know, step along the way, you're going to lose some product. But essentially in research, uh, looking at the bioactive compounds in cannabis kind of follows this suit where you're kind of eluding them out. And that could use like a lot of revision. But, you know, as far as Epidolix and even, you know, Bedrocan, the Dutch medical cannabis um, program, they have a very strong backing on their genetics that they're using. They want to have the absolute most consistent plant time after time after time. Uh, because one of the biggest pushbacks that we've seen in the field of pharmaceuticals or clinical science using cannabis is that it's extremely difficult to have a consistency in botanical formulations. So even if we were to see an extract that was very, very helpful um, in the lab, um, if they're not able to replicate it, you know, time generation after generation, uh, and this happens too, this happens in Israel, you can have a very therapeutic uh, response to it one generation, and then the next generation, it doesn't work, or even worse, it, it, it uh, brings about a serious adverse effect. So those are things that they do. They you know, are still trying to uh, just make a consistency in the genetics and, and, um, and find strains that are helpful to patients and you know, just pray that they can replicate those, um, you know, that plant composition. Um, and they're also working to determine bioactive compounds through processes of evolution. Well, this kind of might even bring it full circle back to synthetic chemistry as potentially the answer. This is what they did for Taxol, right? The chemical from like right. three, that's a cancer drug, right? My favorite it's, example. So as this comes from the Pacific Northwest, you know, this yeah. tree, the mountain U, and, you know, it was, it's a chemotherapy drug that's extremely extreme, uh, was, you know, determined to be extremely effective. And it got to a point where they like, there wasn't enough trees, you know, to even uh, produce the level of demand for this, you know, this medicine. Um, so, you know, uh, very smart people started synthetically producing Taxol. And it's at least in the, you know, the very beginning of the, of the 2000s, it was the highest selling chemotherapy drug, if not one of the highest selling drugs on the market. So there's a high demand for it. It's very efficacious. And uh, it's the synthetic chemistry that is, you know, really making this a, a possibility for the modern world. Ben, your opinion, do you think pharmaceutical companies will be help the cause for cannabis as a therapeutic? Or do you think that they're look to push against it? Honestly, I'm pretty optimistic. 
I believe in the cooperation between pharmaceuticals um, and cannabis. I don't have the stance that pharmaceutical you know, giants are out to destroy us. You know, that argument can definitely be made. And I don't know if we have enough time for that entire one. <laughs> but just speaking to um, doctors and physicians that um, are trying to get access to a dialect for research studies um, or even through patient access, one of the, you know, the biggest things that they've said time and time again is that um, the FDA, DEA are very cooperative, um, but they've boxed themselves in. You know, there is this in, in, uh, extreme regulatory framework um, that the FDA, DEA has you know, set up against themselves that has boxed them in. So they don't have the ability to, you know, want to just drop it for, you know, but they don't have the regulatory ability to um, engage in this activity just yet. But it does seem like they do like to cooperate, you know, within reason for um, drugs that have passed the clinical pipeline um, that have been proven to be effective. So I'm, you know, I'm very pro-pharma. And I think that, you know, there are very positive things that will come out down the line um, with it. But Dylan, do you want to take your natural stance of anti-pharma? No, I, I think that from an optimistic perspective, I mean, the biggest challenge is going to be like we've we've literally been discussing how specific strains have different effect. And I, I think to, to kind of distill that that down to its essence is different strains are going to have different chemical profiles, right? And at the end of the day, we're seeing these very complex extracts that could have upwards of four, 400 chemicals present at one time, right? Just you're manipulating a few of these different chemicals in very, very small concentrations, right? Because I don't know exactly what the, the potency of cannabinoids in terms of mainly CBD and THC were in your extracts, but I imagine they're above 50 to 60% in, in, right. the, in the extracts. Right. So we're talking the manipulation of the other 40% and with 400 chemicals over that 40%, we're talking potentially a couple milligram difference in an active chemical. And I mean, it's just like, it sounds like a very steep hill to climb to go through and identify exactly which chemical at which concentration is the one that's responsible for what we're seeing from a, a result standpoint in how effective these drugs are at that point, right? And I a mean, lot of the tools that we're using in this research, you know, are, you know, because of the pharmaceutical industry, you know, yes. I, you know, understand that the DEA kind of got us into this situation at the beginning of the century or at the beginning of the 19th, uh, 20th century, sorry. And if we have the analytical capacity that we do now, back then, you know, there was uh, cannabis appeared in, you know, the American pharmacopoeia um, as late as 1952, I believe. Um, and there were physicians and pharmacists that were really advocating that the therapeutic potential of this plant has not yet been fully elucidated. I think if we had that capacity back then, there's no way that it would be the same situation that we're in now. So, you know, I do realize that, you know, DEA has put us into this and there's just been a you know, crazy um, amount of repercussions um, extending, you know, not even just in medicine, but, um, you know, in, uh, in civil rights um, that, you know, are because of the, uh, you know, the regulatory framework or even how they're planning or how they deal with it. But I think the times are changing. Um, and I think that, you know, people that are uh, inside those, you know, regulatory groups right now would be hard pressed to say that it does not have, um, you know, therapeutic potential. And, you know, just in terms of descheduling of CBD, 
um, the descheduling of THC. Um, these are baby steps in the right direction, but they're, I, I feel like indicative that there is um, a cooperation on the horizon. Yeah, I think that as daunting as that task could be to figure that out, if you put the fundamental research on the shoulders of universities across the globe, like, I think that they'll be able to kind of push through with that kind of a... a I can't wait, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like we're about to go through like a period of time where there's going to be just massive breakthroughs and it's just going to be so exciting to see like all the progress we're making. Yeah. And, you know, even outside of... uh, Because there's like little blips of this and one of the most uh, fascinating endocannabinologist scientists to me is this... I think her last name is Mueller. Um, She's a German scientist who's um, treating Tourette's. She's got this conjugated system using a, uh, like an antibody based uh, delivery tied to PEA, which is a endocannabinoid. So I think that we'll, you know, in the realm of medicine and and drugs um, begin to see compounds like that, you know, we'll start merging cannabis compounds with, uh, you know, monoclonal antibodies, uh, bispecific antibodies, things like that, you know, inducing it uh, in adjuvant therapy with chemotherapy. And I think that we'll just see a tremendous benefit um, that otherwise wouldn't be possible using these compounds by themselves. So I'm very optimistic about it. They need to teach this in school for sure. But, you know, I, I do think it's on the horizon. One problem at a time. So question for you, Ben. What is one area that the everyday consumer of cannabis might not be aware of just from your understanding or research, something that you've come across that you say that most people would be surprised or be shocked by this? I mean, the field of the endocannabinoid system in general, you know, I, uh, or what we know about the endocannabinoid system in general. Um, you know, I tell people all the time that cannabis co-evolved with the, you know, the ECS. Cannabis led us to the endocannabinoid system in the lab, but in nature, the endocannabinoid system led to cannabis. You know, this is a, a series of you know, receptors and enzymes and ligands found in all species um, that predates cannabis, that predates trees, that predates flowering plants by hundreds of millions of years. So when I'm talking to um, most cannabis users that are familiar with CB1, CB2, the extent of how prolific and ancient this system doesn't seem to be understood or common knowledge just yet. Which is extremely frustrating. So, and I, you know, I just feel like on a common level, you know, what we know about the endocannabinoid system really needs to be um, identified and just grounded in um, to our cultural lexicon. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been your biggest misconception? Biggest misconception, I guess that you know that THC and CBD are the only compounds, but that's not the same problem that you find with cannabis users. You know, at this point, they kind of know about you know CBG and CBN and things like that, but I guess that, you know, the anti-cancer properties lay, you know, exclusively in THC or THC and CBD. But even using CBG, you know, we've seen at least in cell research that it produces a tremendous effect. What, uh, what's your favorite minor cannabinoid that's not really getting the most publicity out there? Do you think uh, is CBN? Is that considered a minor cannabinoid? Yeah, I but that it. one's getting all okay. Let's, really let's go like- a little deeper. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. 31316B. Yeah, I would say that, honestly. They're one of the compounds that is unidentified. There are glimpses in you know cell and uh, in vivo research that shows that this might play a role in the bioactive effects that's admitted from these extracts. So I'd have to say one of the ones that isn't you know fully uh, identified yet, because when we're doing these fractionation methods, 
it seems that those compounds are actually playing a significant role, which just blows my mind. Can I find that on the internet? I will have to take a look, but I don't, I'm not sure yet. Can I Google that? What was yeah. it? Just, just Google that exact thing. Yeah, three one three. Yeah, three one. Yeah, I shouldn't even be talking about it, but um, you can look. <laughs> yeah. People are going to show up at Ben's house now, knock on the door, <laughs> take him away. My old PI is going to show up in my house and take me away. So <laughs> the, the IDF is going to show up. But um, if you look at um, publications from the Miri lab, um, you know, one of the things that you can see between the difference in the PTZ study that I mentioned with the mice that were you know, induced with an epileptic response, and even the um, paper that they just released in February of this year that was actually using patient samples and surveys um, is this tremendous difference in those unidentified compounds. So um, it remains to be, you know, seen which one of those um, could carry a bioactive compound, but um, it does, uh, we just don't know um, as much as we think we do at this point. That's how dope. If you could sum up your experience in the cannabinoid space into a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? One thing that I, yeah, it seems that what really is essential right now is an understanding of analytical chemistry, bioinformatics, in silico, which is like computational, like ligand binding and stuff like that. Um, so I really think that like what is going to be most helpful to this field is this interdisciplinary cross-discipline expertise that is um, so helpful in the field of medicine right now. And that seems to be like where even, you know, the recreational and uh, the medicinal space are um, most lacking is with analytical chemists, bioinformatics, um, computational scientists, things of that nature. Um, and it's, you know, it's more than likely that that is uh, going to be what really helps us elucidate uh, what the heck's going on with this plant. Prediction time. Five yeah. years from now, it's 2026. <laughs> Have we achieved a breakthrough in cannabinoid research that has changed this the space medically forever? Man, I don't know. Where were we five years ago? Like, um, let's think. In 2016, I guess Epidiolex had been released. Um, it hadn't been rescheduled, though. Okay, right on. And it wasn't even, you know, out in a couple of countries. And, you know, even a few states hadn't even, you know, began the, the process of the medicinal uh, market. So, so I don't know. It's hard to say. There has been tremendous change in the last five years. Um, there's been tremendous change in the last 10 years. But uh, seriously, like what we know about the endocannabinoid system and everything that I've kind of said in regards to that uh, was discovered before 2012. So it's out there. It just needs to be brought to light, in my opinion. So, yeah, I don't know. It baby steps, to be honest. And I guess it depends who you're asking. But, you know, since you're asking me, I would, I would say that these would be tremendous steps. Like I'm so gung-ho about, um, you know, just the, the minor incremental steps that we're taking. And, you know, even if, because I'm in Texas right now, so even if Texas was just to offer an expanded list of conditions offered, you know, to the medical marijuana program, I think that would be a, just a tremendously large step. So you and the other Texans we talked to. (laughs) (laughs) We need you on the record though, Ben, have we achieved a big breakthrough by 2026? I'm going to say shit. (laughs) I'm going to say maybe, maybe it depends on the access. You know, Israel is doing an incredible job and it's, you know, they're one of the only countries right now that's uh, using the access they have. Um, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on in Canada. I never worked there before, but they 
do not engage in the same biological um, experiments. Um, DeMarzo is like the man in my book, and he's just done so much for this field that you know most people can't even hold a candle to him. But unless countries are able to increase their access, uh, more than likely we're going to be somewhat in the same space we are now. But I do want to harp that even though we don't have like biological access in the States, the, the recreational industry has really driven a lot of innovation. You know, without the recreational industry, we would not see this, you know, um, anxiolytic effect of CBG, you know, these anti-anxiety effects of CBG, the you know use of CBN for sleep and things like that. So I do believe that the recreational you know, industry drives um, innovation, but in my mind, there is not another country like Israel that's producing the same level of output necessary to really get us to a point where we have a fine holding um, on, you know, everything this plant has to offer. So I'll have you down as a maybe leaning yes. Yeah, there we go. I like that. <laughs> I say yes. And I think the breakthrough is that we reschedule THC and CBD and you get access right. globally. Universities get access to it, which I think then will be kind of like the catalyst for just a waterfall of innovation and deeper understanding associated with the endogenous chemicals in the plant across the board. What about you, Brian? What's your prediction? Let's hear it. So usually I like to take the opposite of the the consensus, but for this one, I I agree. I think it's just going to be like a stepping stone of advanced innovation and it's going to be fast. I think there's going to be breakthrough left and right because we're finally just going to open up the gates and say, all right, guys, like have at it. Like, let's see what we can find out. And even from the early studies, it seems like it's super, super promising. So having advanced opportunities to kind of expand on this would really be promising. Yeah. And I'll just say one more thing. You can see what type of clinical studies are being undergone right now. You just go on like clinical.gov, I believe it is. But if you Google that, you know, you'll be able to find it. About two years ago, and don't quote me this, but like a few years ago, there was uh, just, a, just a tiny, tiny amount of uh, clinical trials undergone uh, using cannabis compounds um, that were being undergone. Is that the word? But right now, um, I believe that there's, you know, upwards of over 70 or so just in the states alone. And they, you know, they vary between, uh, you know, can you drive on this um, to the effects of, uh, you know, people with multiple sclerosis. But there is a tremendous amount of clinical trials that were not being, you know, the, the list has just grown every single year. So that to me makes me feel very optimistic. Yeah, just the idea that like cannabis can help people medically, I I think is like kind of sometimes like the silent story in the room with all of the noise that's going on. And I think it's so promising that at the end of the day, if this product can help people, we should allow others to kind of benefit from it. And if it helps people, that's all that matters. Yeah, cheers to that. So Ben, for our followers who want to get in touch, they want to learn more and they want to pick your brain about this new cannabinoid, where can they reach out to you? So you can find me uh, through Viridian and uh, we spell that V-E-R-I-D-I-A-N. Um, so you can find me at ben.viridian at gmail.com. Um, Viridian is the color green. V-E-R is the Latin root for truth. So we are uh, green truth, basically. Um, you can also just feel free to reach out to me at benoyhus91 um, at gmail.com. Welcome any kind of uh, collaboration question um, or anything of the sort. Thanks so much for your time, Ben. Appreciate it, guys. Pleasure to be here.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.